Hey, it's really good to uh, it's really good to be here with you guys tonight. Uh, for those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Jared. I'm on staff here at Matthias. I have the grace to work in a, a, such an amazing church as this one is. And uh, tonight we're going to keep going through the book of James as we work through that. Um, we're almost toward the end. We're we're rounding the, the, the corner. We're heading on the straightaway. Uh, I've got Olympics on my mind, so everything is like a running analogy. Or, uh, But to start off, before we get into the text, I want to just talk about the Olympics for just a, a second. Um, who's, who's enjoying the, the past week and a half of Olympic coverage? Yeah. What's, what's some of your favorite events that you like seeing? Gymnastics. Swimming, gymnastics, wrestling, judo. judo, a whole bunch of stuff I can't hear in the back, but I believe it. Um, Equestrian, yes. Ronnie Worm loves equestrian. Basketball, yes. Is there ever really a question who's going to take either one of those? No. Um, but the Olympics, uh, it's a tremendous time. Every, every four years, you know, depending on the summer or winter ones, um, pretty amazing stuff that we've seen happen. You know, it's, I'm always amazed by the fact that people can, can do something better than anybody else in the history of the world has ever done it on record, at least. I'm really fascinated by that, the tension uh, of, of, of how a, a nail-biter is going to turn out, a tie and a score, or, um, or a final result, how it's going to turn out. It's pretty amazing to see. But there's something that's been happening that's, that's a new way we've come to experience the Olympics, than, uh, uh, new and, and, and different in ways that we've never experienced before. And it's the advent of social media and its role in how we watch something like this. Uh, if you're like me, you've probably had, um, you've probably jumped on Twitter and seen somebody's tweet and had your viewing, uh, your viewing pleasure that evening ruined because you've seen them uh, broadcast the results early, or uh, or it's pretty amazing because you you see a lot of people uh, tweeting right after their stuff. So so off the record, off the TV interview, you're getting their words and their stuff. I think um, I think social media has done that for our world, not just for Olympic athletes, but for a lot of people who we wouldn't otherwise know. And I think it's, um, it's done uh, some good things, but also it's done some things that uh, are not so helpful. I think it's, uh, it's created a culture within us of uh, false knowers, of people who uh, claim to know somebody, people who follow somebody on Twitter, people who are friends with maybe a celebrity on Facebook or they like their page or something. Uh, it, it causes us to start uh, doing things, the more we get involved with, uh, with said Twitter person or Facebook person, I don't know whatever else I would call them, but, but, but it's, it makes you start to do funny things, like, like you, you start to say things, like you drop the last name, you know, hey, did you, did you see what Michael said after he won 21, you know, uh, did, did you see what Missy wrote right after she won her first gold, you know, you start to play all these games in which you give off an appearance, maybe even you feel like you know, um, this person, you know these people, but in reality, they're, they're just computer screens, you know, I mean, they're real people, don't, don't get me wrong, they're real, but, but what we know is just words on a, words on a page, it's words on the screen, uh, and so this whole idea of knowing is, is pretty crucial tonight to how we understand this. Um, we're going to look at some words, again, we've, we've gone through this, we've said some of this stuff every week, but, um, but yet not maybe with the care that, that I'm about to just explain what's going on. So, so James, like we've said every week, is the younger half-brother of Jesus. Um, James knew Jesus of Nazareth. Now think about all that that implies. How many, how many of you have older siblings in here? Okay, how many of you have ever been uh, put into the shadow of your older sibling for one reason or another? 
uh, good or bad. Either a teacher is excited to have you or they're biting their nails dreading having you because your older sibling was horrible. Or, uh, or, or on the team, it's, you know, hey, why, why can't you do this? Your brother did this or your sister, when they were here, they, they did this. I'm sure James experienced that somewhat at least. We have to assume that Jesus, who was perfect, who didn't sin once even in his life, it would be tough to live in his shadow. Uh, and as we read through the Gospels, I, I did a survey through each one of the Gospels this past week, and I was just trying to look at what do we know about James and who he is and what he believes and, and what he thinks throughout the Gospels. Well, most of the time that the word or the name James is in one of the Gospels, it's talking about James, uh, the brother of John, one of the sons of Zebedee, one of the sons of Thunder, what a great, uh, great nickname that would be. Uh, so James, the brother of the Lord, James, the brother of Jesus, is not mentioned very often, actually. Uh, matter of fact, the only times that he is mentioned, matter of fact, he's, he's given credit with some form of, of disbelief or not believing that, that Jesus is who he says he is. In Mark 3, uh, we read that, that everybody in his family uh, thought that Jesus was crazy, James included. In John 7, we read that, that though, though Jesus came back to his hometown, came back to Nazareth, Jesus said a prophet is rejected in his hometown, and it says even his family, even his brothers didn't receive him. So it's a pretty tremendous thing to think about what it would be like to grow up and have Jesus of Nazareth as your older brother. Um, to be fighting off the whole, you know, people are starting to talk about him and say things about him, and he's got a reputation. And all the while, it seems like James just thinks that his older brother's probably just crazy. He's a, he's a good Jew. He's awaiting the Messiah. He's waiting for the Lord to return and be with his people. But, but he, he's just seeing his brother who, I imagine he, as he thinks about a Messiah who's supposed to, come back and fight for Israel and fight their battles. He's looking at Jesus saying, he's just a carpenter, he's not a warrior. Um, but something happened. And at the end of the Gospels, we, we read that Jesus reappeared as, as, after he rose bodily from the dead. He showed himself to the disciples. He showed himself to his followers. And he also showed himself to his family. And though it doesn't describe the interaction there, the only thing that we read from there on out, from Acts through the rest of the New Testament, are words that describe James as confident in what he's saying. And, and he's thrown into a place of pretty high authority. I mean, it's pretty amazing if you think about it. Assume that James, who saw uh, the resurrected Christ, who maybe knew Jesus as the Christ for the first time when he reappeared and shown himself to him. Think about what it would be like from there to only in a matter of a few years later, you're put into the, the place of, of power and charge and authority over the Jerusalem church. Uh, if you've been a believer in here for five years, you probably have been a believer for longer than James when he took command of the Jerusalem church. And we can underestimate this sometimes because the Jerusalem church, though we think about all these things that Paul went on and did, most of the, the areas that he planted churches in were relatively small for, for a little while at least. So at the time James took this over, he's, he's, he's got the helm of the, the powerhouse, the heart of the Christian church as it's spreading throughout the world. So I think something happened that, that changed all this. It wasn't just uh, seeing Jesus that, that made everything different. It was recognizing that Jesus, his brother, who he knew all his life, uh, was Jesus the Christ, the risen Lord. And so something uh, about that, I think, caused the apostles to want to feel confident enough to, to, to hand James over the reins of this Jerusalem church. You know, why, why wouldn't Peter stay or, or Andrew or, or Bartholomew Anybody named Bartholomew in here, by the way? I always love that name. He's not, I don't think his name's really Bartholomew. You're just pointing to him. Um, <laughs> the, 
there's something that happens in this. You know, James is not just, not just knowing who Jesus is, but, but, but once he knows who he is, his Savior, all that becomes informed by the 20-plus years that he had seen him. And I think now, all of a sudden, James had a perspective that made sense that really nobody else had quite like his. And so everything that we read in this letter of James to his followers, to his um, audience, he's, he's not writing like fortune cookie, disconnected, impersonal wisdom. You know, well, here's, here's some good things you should know to, to live by. Everything he's saying is informed by a personal relationship with Jesus. And it's easy to go through James and just to, to, to kind of learn and figure out what are we supposed to do here. These are good actions. This is how I should live my life. But, um, but everything James is saying hinges on a personal relationship with Christ, first and foremost. It's central to everything. So as we think about that, uh, turn in your Bibles to James 5. If you have one of the pew Bibles, the page number is 871, as it says up here on the screen, 871. All right, so look at this when I read, as I read through this. James 5, 7 through 12. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers... Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or, or any other oath, but let your yes be yes and let your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Amazing text, fantastic passage. So right away, looking at verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers. Two things right away. First of all, um, patience is, you know, of course, patience is a virtue. Um, how many of you would consider yourself patient as a person? We're, we're a very anxious church. <laughs> um, there, there's a difference between being patient, looking patient on the outside, um, not being just quick to act on things, and and being truly patient as you, you're anxious on the, on the inside, hoping for fruition to come. Um, and James, right away, he's jumping into this, addressing these people as brothers. If any of you here were, uh, were here last week, you remember that it was a pretty, pretty chastising passage. You know, come on now, you who are rich, yada, yada, yada. Uh, all these things, uh, I, I didn't think yada, yada, yada all last week, I promise. But, um, but in, in all these things, you know, e even in the harshest, critiques, even, then, even in the calls to repent, to, to avert judgment, the, the purpose of, of the Lord, the purpose of his word is, is, is always good-willed. Um, at this point, there's still room for turning before condemnation. Um, now, thinking about this, uh, this issue of farming, um, I know Mark talks very often about um, not being much of a farmer. I, too, am not much of a farmer, but I grew up alongside a ton of Farmers, does, does anybody in here go to Orchard Farm High School or School District? Nope. Track record's still pretty good. There's like 50 people in the school. So uh, about 10 miles this way, there's a school. It's in the middle of a bunch of cornfield. You don't even actually know that the school's there, uh, there from the road till they cut down the corn. Uh, so, so, you know, where, whereas, you know, most people's high schools are like, 
you know, the people who are cool and in charge are like athletes and, and uh, people who are popular, like the it, the it girls and all that. Um, the cool, like the in crowd in my high school were like farming families. It was really uh, strange. Um, really strange routines, I think, going through the school year because at certain times throughout the school year, people just show up uh, wearing like dirty jeans. And I, I was just always wondering, why, you know, why are they dirty? What's going on? Well, uh, a lot of people's fathers would make them get up early to work the fields before coming in. It was... Uh, it probably sounds kind of creepy, like a children of the corn kind of uh, setting, but, but it, was, it was good, I promise you. It was a good environment, a good school. I really appreciated it. Um, but, but this idea of farming really has some, has some stuff to it. I mean, so as a farmer, especially as a farmer who, who's done this for years and years, you're, you're planting seeds, you're planting crops, you're, you're doing things throughout the year that, that in general, unless we have like a thousand-year drought like we're having this year, in general, if you do certain things, uh, crops will produce uh, pretty plentiful. If you water it, if you plant it at the right time, if you pull it up according to a, a calendar, if you, if you do certain things, it, it's going to work out. Fruit will be produced. Crops will come up. Um, and I think James is, is, is bringing up this farming analogy just to, to bring up this idea that, that there's hard work to be done before we see the fruition of what's happening. Uh, there's... Everything that we're doing today, everything that can seem mundane at times, actually feeds in really well to uh, a future result that we seek. And it is precious, like this fruit is precious. What we await, the coming of the Lord, is a precious thing. Now, now for the Jew, for James's audience, everybody in this uh, church, everybody in this place would be very fixed on when God is going to come back. When he's going to come back, when he's going to make all things right, when he's going to finally vindicate Israel, when he's going to remove all their oppressors, their enemies. And so James is saying, yes, yes, it's, it's coming, it's soon, but work has to be done first. Now, um, I don't know if, you, if any of uh, you guys are, are into deck building. How many of you guys are building a deck right now in your house? I'm like zero for three so far. Oh, there we go, there's one. Uh, Jeff, thank you. <laughs> now, I am helping... I am helping out. Uh, Sarah and I have, have, have spent a few days over at her parents' house building this phenomenal, big, huge platform deck that's on the back of their house. You know, hard work, you know, sweaty, all that stuff. Well, uh, lo and behold, one of the steps going down to the ground actually ended up being too high off the ground to be a step by itself. So we had to build a different, uh, an additional step on the end. Um, now, this is, this is like a masterpiece move. We're, you know, the way this all worked out, I think we're, we're going to patent this and call it the Harris Corzine like technique or something. We're going to send stuff off to uh, the government and get it all in our names. But uh, the streets have been just blocked up. Paparazzi have been coming by trying to take pictures uh, left and right. Um, but what's happened is this. You know, we didn't want to, to nail or, or, or fix something to the deck itself. Uh, we didn't want to mess with that a whole lot. So what we did, we uh, discovered, uh, like on both sides, there's a sidewalk that comes out for it. So, so on this sidewalk, what we essentially did was build an independent step that, that, that uh, edges up against the deck. Now, if you know anything about steps or weight and load and pressure, if, if, if we just built, that, you know, built this nice little box to step on and just laid it in front of the deck, it, it wouldn't uh, work out too well, um, especially when the wind blew or when... Uh, Bigger folk like myself jumped on it. We would go sliding if it wasn't attached to anything. So, so what we did was we had to anchor the step down into the concrete. We had to fix it to something underneath so that it wouldn't move because there was going to be forces put on it and pressure put on it to, uh, to shift. Uh, and I think that's what's happening. If you look here at the end of uh, at verse 8, he's saying, you also be patient. Uh, don't be anxious and, 
and, and to and fro all over the place, not, not knowing that, that the Lord will come back. Know that he will come back. Be patient. And in the meantime, establish your hearts. Uh, now, this word establish, sterizo, it's a, it's a wonderful little word that, that also means um, to fix, to anchor, uh, to attach something, to establish something on the ground. It's like when you dig yourself in um, in a tug of war. It's you establish yourself in your position. So, so James right away is saying, hey, uh, the coming of the Lord is going to happen soon. Uh, but it's not yet. They're most likely, uh, likely facing persecution, most likely facing um, some pretty big hardships as a result of their faith. And so saying rather than uh, allowing yourselves to be blown to and fro, establish yourself right where you are because he will return, have faith. Now, when we have to think about, you know, what does it take to establish ourselves? What are these patient works of establishment? What are we supposed to do that's the right thing to do now? Well, uh, I, I've, I've heard from many people, you know, the, the phrase of the killer bees. Have you ever heard of the killer bees? Bee, be in your Bible, be in prayer, be in church. You know, it's every preacher's answer ever is, is one of the killer bees, if not all. Um, but, but being in the Bible, being in prayer, being in church, all of a sudden uh, we realize that, that in Christ, these, they're not just dutiful things that we do to work ourselves up to the Lord. We know that, that Christ's work is already finished, as Brandon said earlier. And, and we know that the Lord will come back to finish everything once and for all. So, so the killer bees become joyful delights. Because being in the Bible... Being in the Bible on a regular basis affirms God's character. It gives us truth amidst a whole bunch of lies from the enemy. Okay, being in prayer uh, affirms to us, establishes within us the intimacy that it takes with Christ to have a relationship with him. That he's a real person, that he's a real, a real being that we get to enjoy. And, and being in church, now this is the tricky one because a lot of people don't necessarily want to be in church, but... Um, but I know this, uh, I, I've been hanging with a lot of people in the past few weeks who, um, who've, who've been struggling, who've been wrestling, who've been fighting with things that they essentially feel alone in. Now, instead of being a, a, a body of people that comes together and says, yeah, we've got stuff mostly figured out, but we like God, so we're going to come worship him. You know, that's, that, that's the common norm, I think, of how people understand church to be. But if we all acknowledge the reality of what we truly are, which are people who have nothing outside of God's grace, who have nothing outside of our relationship with the Lord. Then coming together, all of a sudden we realize that none of us are alone in our struggles and our joys. So instead of the killer bees being, you know, killer and dutiful, all of a sudden it becomes joyful, establishing us who we are. Uh, verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers. Again, the, the endearing nature of James's words to his audience so that you may not be judged. Uh, behold, the judge is standing at the door. So James, right away, uh, he's saying, stop wasting time grumbling. Do any of you guys have, like, grumbling friends? Or, or there's one friend in the group that you know that if we're, you're on a road trip and you get sidetracked, he's going to be the guy who's going to be complaining for the next two hours. Or, uh, I'm not going to ask the husbands or wives to attest to that because probably at different times we could all say that. But... Um, but what he's saying is you're wasting your time grumbling. And, and there, there is something to that because um, you're wasting your time grumbling when you have every opportunity to be joyful. Uh, you're a Christian. You're saved by Christ. Why? You know, Jesus loves you. Why are you so sad? Um, I, this word to, to grumble, I, I love it. It's stenos. It also means to complain. One of the better places that we read it is, uh, here, put this slide up, in the, actually in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Here in Exodus 2, 
This word grumbling comes up. During those days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Uh, tremendous passages. The, the, this is the, the picture, I think, of what, of what groaning produces in a good way. When our, when our predicament um, is uncertain, uh, lifting our cries up to the Lord, um, knowing that this is not producing, but, but maybe he'll hear us. That's, I think that's the right way to have this. But in the sense that James is talking about, we've, they and us too have turned this groaning, this grumbling, this complaining um, onto each other. You know, it's like when you're in the car way too long and all of a sudden everybody just starts fighting. You know, I think this is kind of what we find ourselves in sometimes. It's been 2,000 years in this car and we're still here. So we're just fighting with each other. So this, this, this idea that uh, grumbling uh, receives condemnation somehow, I think it's, he's saying it's indicative that grumbling, uh, an over-complaining heart, uh, actually is, is, is meaning that you're fidgety. Uh, you're not fixed. You're not established. You don't really believe that the Lord will return and make all this right. Maybe you don't believe if all you do is grumble. Um, but then he moves on here in the end of the verse. He says, Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Judgment is, a, is always a funny, um, a funny thing to talk about. It's always a pretty popular topic amongst many preachers. Uh, we'll just get together and talk about judgment. It'll figure itself out. We'll be good. Uh, judgment's a terrible thing to talk about if you're guilty. Okay, so picture the law court. Picture uh, you're sitting there. Picture the judge uh, being God himself up on the, 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 uh, the podium. Okay, uh, the accuser stands up and, and, and offers up some evidence that's uh, actually pretty convincing. Uh, prosecutor's probably thinking, hey, this, this, this case is pretty airtight. Um, but then even as you get up to try to justify yourself like we do so often, uh, the most unlikely of characters, an advocate, stands up. And just by him identifying himself with us, all of a sudden the evidence is null and void. I mean, judgment, if you're in Christ, if you know the Lord, if you're a believer, if you have a relationship with the Lord, judgment is fine to talk about. Because I know that after judgment, all things will be made right finally. We, we won't have to deal with this groaning anymore. We won't have to deal with wars, with poverty, with famine, with these evil things that we read about, elections. I don't know if any of you have not been appreciating a lot of the commercials these days. Uh, I, don't know, I don't know what kind of government we have in heaven, but I hope that we elect ourselves in very different formats. Um, so something uh, is, is produced here back in verse 8. Uh, so he says, the judge is standing at the door. Um, there's two reactions probably to the judge standing at the door. First one is this, is that you're eager because you're ready. So, so you know the judge is coming. So, so things are are in order. You're, you're packed. You're ready to go. You got your suitcase. It's sitting by the door. I'm I'm good to go. Um, you're even waiting, eager. So so when he knocks, almost before the second knock, the door is already open. Say, hey, it's good to see. You. I've been waiting for you. Uh, or the second thing is that you panic as you try to clean up. Um, many of us, uh, many of us, many of you have had these experiences where uh, something is going on that shouldn't be, probably in your bedroom or, or, or in some place where you're doing something you shouldn't, and all of a sudden a knock at the door happens. Um, I'm picturing the movie Dazed and Confused right now where the kid's father knocks on the door and then they somehow try to spray like some Lysol and it's supposed to cover up the, the smell of drugs. It's, it's uh, actually pretty silly to watch 
all this unfold. And you think that, that all of a sudden that, that, that by this cleaning up, by these last-minute sweeps, by hiding the evidence under the bed, whatever it is, that, uh, that maybe the judge just won't catch it. Um, but we know that, that, that that's not true. We know that, that God sees all things. Um, so I'm saying this not, not primarily actually even talking to, to non-believers right now. Now, know that, 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 that judgment is coming. But for the believer, uh, the call is actually to, to say, hey, you, you are on the right side of these things. You're a follower of Christ. You're taken care of. So now until he comes, do the works that, that, that remind you more and more every day that God is God. Uh, verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers. Once again, brothers. I love it how James just doesn't stop saying brothers. Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Uh, it's never fun to stand up uh, for something that you believe in against a mob. Um, it's never fun to be the unpopular one who's standing up against the crowd who's, who's a small voice in a sea of, uh, of anger and hostility. Um, but James brings up this idea of the prophet. He says, take the example of the prophets. Um, now, the Old Testament prophets are, uh, it's an honored position, but it's not a position I would most gladly take on uh, because most of their stories are not really happy ones. Uh, we're going to look at one prophet, um, Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. This is what God said to Jeremiah. This is what he said right after his calling. He said, they, talking about Israel, they will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. Uh, amazing, amazing truth. I actually love the Anchor Bible translation just as much. It sounds like Yoda in a way. Attack you, they will. Overcome you, they can't. For I am with you. So, Right away in this, God, God is calling Jeremiah to do this tremendous thing. You know, preach repentance, preach, um, pre- preach uh, salvation, preach, preach uh, that, that the people should, should turn from their sins and turn back to me so that judgment's avoided and so that we're not taken captive. And so Jeremiah does that, but God says, actually, I'm going to tell you from the very beginning, here's, here's what you're going to do and here's what's going to happen. They're going to fight against you. Uh, they're going to really fight hard, um, but they're not going to overcome you because I'm with you. So, Jeremiah, here's a biography of Jeremiah's life in like 30 seconds. So, Jeremiah was attacked by his brothers. Okay, not fun. Next one. Beaten and put into the stocks by a priest. Not one, but that was unexpected. Don't expect the priest to put him in the stocks. That'd have to be a pretty strong priest, by the way. Um, opposed by a false prophet, one who he thought was a prophet of the Lord and ended up not being. Next one. Imprisoned by the king, the king who represented the people that he was preaching to, the people that he was with threatened by death this next one okay threatened with death next one after that thrown into a muddy cistern by officials so they decide not to kill him so they throw him down into a cistern and it just said that it was muddy then the last one here unexpected freed from prison and treated well by nebuchadnezzar the king of the babylonians when they took over jerusalem and judah in 586 bc now it's crazy because all the people that should be on jeremiah's side all the people that he is doing this for not now, he's not against them. He's for the people of Israel. All the people that he is for are the people who have actually turned and are fighting him the most. And the one who's supposed to be the enemy is actually with such a wonderful display of God's care through his sovereignty. The one who ends up vindicating Jeremiah is actually the chief enemy. Uh, unbelievable. Now, the, uh, 
the question that, uh, that I come back to in all this is, you know, Jeremiah's got a pretty long laundry list of opposition. He's got a pretty long um, list of, of, of things to complain about. Um, but James is, is telling us to look at the prophets for a certain reason. So as we look at the prophets and he's saying, you know, consider their example. As we look at his example, I just wonder, uh, what's, what's, what's oppressing you? You know, what's, what's coming at you? Uh, maybe it's somebody you know. Uh, maybe it's an enemy out of nowhere. Maybe it's someone that you love. Maybe it's um, people you're trying to help. Uh, I know that just like for Jeremiah's case, that, that for us, you know, the difference in all the world is not our ability to fight harder than the people oppressing us. The, the thing we have in our corner is that the Lord is with us. So it, it brings this, this, this idea back to this personal relationship, back to a personal understanding of who God is. If we are near God, then everything is okay. So verse 11, James says this, Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. I love this word steadfast. It's, it's, uh, it's called hupomeno, which is actually a, a, a derivative of another word called meno, which is the word for abide. In John 15, when Jesus said, Abide in me and I in you. Apart from me, you can do nothing. This word abide is what, is what James is bringing up here. Uh, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast, who endured, who stood their ground. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Uh, it's really tough to, to remember sometimes that God is compassionate, and God is a God of mercy. Um, as we look at Job... Uh, see if this says something about you. Next slide. So Job, this is your third biography tonight, was blameless and upright and wealthy. I don't know if we have anybody who's blameless and upright. Maybe a few wealthy people, I don't know. Second thing, none like him who feared the Lord. We probably don't have too many who are like him if there are none like him. Third thing, was allowed by God to be tempted by Satan. Okay, pretty heavy stuff. Have you considered my servant Job? lost his possessions and his children. In one day, a messenger came to him and said that all of his possessions had been, had been stolen and that uh, thieves had come, and, and as they were doing that, that, that the house collapsed and, and killed all of his children. He had seven sons and three daughters. Next thing, he lost his health. Life's not turning out for him so well so far. Next thing, he says he cursed the day he was born. Um, thing after that, he received bad wife, uh, bad, bad, he did have a bad wife, but he received bad advice from his wife and his friends. Um, next thing, he finally, in, in chapter 31, questioned God's motives. He's, he's trying to justify himself. He's trying to, to, to say, why is this coming upon me? What did I do to actually deserve this? So he does doubt some of the Lord's intentions, but he did not turn. He didn't actually doubt who God was. Next one, in verse 42, he repented, and he said things like, your ways are too wonderful to me. For, for me to understand. You're, you're too high and lofty. Who am I uh, to question you? Last thing it says, he was restored with prosperity and children. He got seven more sons and three more daughters. He got way more cattle and donkeys and all the things that, that made a, a, a Hebrew in that time prosperous. Um, I, I don't know what you're going through in your life right now. I don't know um, where you're at specifically, but uh, but what's been, what, what is being or what's been taken from you right now? Um, some of you have stuff that 
there's loss. Some of you have relationships that seem to be on the, on the down. Some of you have, um, literally, everything is just being swept from you. Uh, a few weeks ago, um, in James, we read how James was talking about our life being a, a vapor. It's here one day and it's just gone the next. Uh, some of you are in situations right now which, which actually, literally, you understand what that means. And I, I've been in that situation. Uh, I know what it's like to, 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 to basically do all these things. Maybe, I'm, maybe I've never been wealthy. You know, I'll give you that. I've not been wealthy. But um, following the Lord, knowing him, doing his thing, and all of a sudden something happens where everything's gone. Uh, you receive bad advice. You receive bad counsel. You, you're trying to figure out what, what all this means. And, um, and at some point you even curse the day you're born. Maybe it's hard to even wake up some days. Some of you might be in that position right now. Even, even amidst your questioning, even amidst questioning that I've had in the past, one thing I know to be true is that um, I never gave up my faith in Christ. And I don't say that to say, look at me, uh, because sometimes we can, we can be so down on ourselves when we say, well, I wish I was, I wish I was so much farther along. I wish I, I wish I understood things more. I, all I really have is, well, you know, I, I said yes to Jesus, you know. That, that's all we need. Um, that in the midst of, of, of all of these trials, and, and when the most prosperous of us become the lowest of us, maybe it's, it's easier to understand sometimes that, that the Lord is good and compassionate when you know that the source of, of everything else that you've lost is, is empty and is anything but compassionate. So I just, I just bring it back to you and ask you, what, are you what, what have you lost hold of? Because even in the deepest in the most deepest possible pain where you feel isolated and alone and nobody understands you and you have nothing. I feel like, you know, uh, our, our pet's heads are falling off. I feel like, you know, this is dumb and dumber kind of thing. We've got nothing left, you know. Um, you, but you may feel like that. You've got nothing left. But I can tell you this, that if you have this relationship, if you have this, this yes to Jesus, it may seem cliche, but it's not. That's all you need. If you have that, then you have more than enough. Um, verse 12. But above all, my brothers. I love it. He just says brothers for like the fourth time. My brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Uh, how many of you have heard this verse quoted before? Some hands here and there. Usually it's in the context of why we shouldn't lie. You know, come on, man, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't be double-tongued, you know. Uh, this is something much deeper than just us telling um, the same thing all the time. It's much deeper than just not lying. Uh, James is talking about our confession of Christ, of who he is. And so he's saying amidst all the struggles that are coming your way, amidst the, the things that are seeking to push you off or, or unanchor you or move you around, uh, in your faith, um, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Let your yes be to Christ. Um, I love in Revelation twelve eleven how how this puts it. And this is talking about those who are who are conquering in the end. It says, and they believers have conquered him, Satan, by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they love their lives not even unto death. So they conquered him by the by the blood of the Lamb 
okay, and the word of their testimony. So really, it's only the lamb's blood that's conquering anything. It's just their testimony that's saying, that's all I've got. His blood is good. His, I, I'm, I, I'm with Jesus. That's all I've got to say. On the last day, that's all I've got to say. But it is more than enough. And so in the end, they were judged worthy simply because they held their confession to be true. Yes to Christ, you know. Gr- the greatest of circumstances come. Yes to Christ. You know, the, the worst of circumstances come. Yes to Christ. I like how Paul says it here in 2 Corinthians. Amazing passage. Was I vacillating? This may be the only place that vacillating is inserted here into the New Testament. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh? Ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Um, Paul's saying that, you know, above and beyond, the only thing that we came to you with is a, is a yes in Christ. We weren't, we weren't saying one thing here and, and then turning the other way and saying something else about what we believe about Christ. And, and nothing made us change that. I mean, that, that, that's what he's saying. The, the things that we face on a daily basis in our lives, the, the pressures we face, the hard situations, right, it's going to test your ability to still say yes in Christ. And not always just the Job situation. Um, as a friend of mine who used to say, you know, what happened, what do you do when you're Jobed? He turned the name, you know, Jobed into a verb here. Um, it's not just when you're Jobed that, that you have to ask, do I still believe? Uh, it's when the best of things happen that you still have to, that you still have to ask, do I still believe? Um, I, I'm, I'm in the world of, of biblical scholarship and academic stuff all the time, every day. And even after the deepest, most amazing truths about God, I have to come back at the end of every day and reconcile, do I still believe that Jesus is the Christ? Uh, because I'm nowhere closer to him because of what I know. It's all by his blood. It's all by his grace. So <clears throat> we say yes to a lot of things uh, in our culture. We, um, if you're a people-pleasing kind of person like me, which is very dangerous, you're tempted to say yes to a lot of things that, um, that depends on who's around you, Okay. Um, but I wonder how many things that the church is about, um, I wonder how many yeses the church is saying besides um, a relationship with Christ. I wonder how many, how many opportunities I have out there uh, in the world and you as well where, where we have an opportunity to say yes to the fact that, yes, I still need Jesus today. Because um, I'm pretty sure that the, the world is looking on a church and, and, and us guilty at times of this too where where they're looking at us to see what we're saying yes to, and we're, we're really just saying no to a lot of other things. We're really against a whole lot, but they don't know what we're for. Um, and I'm not making a statement about uh, truth or not truth or, or, or even making judgments about how we should handle this, but, but I know that, um, that I don't want somebody to understand what I'm about based on how much I bash somebody at a fast food restaurant. So I don't care what your stance is on Chick-fil-A or free speech or, you know, 
I'm probably opening up a firestorm getting into this. I'm not, I'm, I don't want to be the weeping prophet here up on the wall, but, um, but I, I know that, that it's really easy to point a finger um, where that may not be a matter of the heart. I can point a finger at somebody else, and that doesn't say anything about what I need from Christ today, right now. I have a need of Christ that is ever growing, just like you. And so if, if we're going to be out there, you know, I'm not saying we shouldn't be engaged in things like that, but, but if we're going to be heard by people over and above, it should be over and over again that our yes is in Christ, that our yes is in our need for the grace that God provides, that the only hope that we have is in Jesus, that, that, that the yes that we'll say today is the same yes we'll say tomorrow. I don't care if that's all I have left. If everything else is taken away and I still have this relationship with Christ, then so be it. Amen and for his glory. Why don't you guys stand with me? I, um, I know that in the end these words can just seem mundane and they can seem repetitive and we're still in James, we're still you know, learning from this guy, but, but I hope you see this, that, that in the end, the only thing that matters at the end of the day, you know, God's not going to ask you where you stood on the Chick-fil-A thing, right? <laughs> God's not going to ask you if you affirm these five points or those five points. God's not going to ask you if you were in this camp and followed this pastor or were in this camp and followed that, that pastor. He's not going to ask me how much Greek I know. It, it doesn't matter in the end. The only thing that matters is he's going to say, my son, did you know him? And so if we can say yes together, then praise God. Why are, we, why are we groaning? Why are we complaining? We have everything to be joyful about. We have everything to be thankful of in Christ. So God, I pray that you would, um, that you would help us to understand what we have in Jesus. I pray for those who, who don't know that, that they would come to find a, a true personal relationship with Jesus today and and that it would change their whole life, that it would transform them. And that, that for those of us who have known him for a while, that you would give us a, a reminder of how much we need this relationship. That above all of, of what it takes to live the Christian life and live for Jesus, that, that you're calling us to live with Jesus and to be in relationship with him. So help us to not forget relationship amidst all the doing. And may you be glorified by the yeses that we say, the yeses for your son, the yeses for him as our savior. May we not be ashamed by confessing our need for him. May we be proud of how much we need him. So Father, would you be honored by the yeses that we say in Christ?